Hi, uh, this is Rowan Goodfellow. Um, wanted to share some of the things that I found today in, near the Don River. Um, most notably was a plastic sterile water container, um, which is sealed and like a light blue. The Hudson R D I A R L H T S I L. Um, kind of neat and a very, very tiny Bombay Sapphire dry gin bottle, an eraser, a glow-in-the-dark star, and some broken pieces of car lights, as well as some rusty chains. I mean, I would say first off that there's many knee-jerk reactions to a space like the Dawn, and one of them is, oh, that's a really dirty, awful space that I don't want to spend any time in, especially if it's the lower Dawn that people are talking about. I want people to see that this place is the product of a series of overlaid decisions and that those decisions weren't inevitable. You know, this space wasn't destined necessarily to to look like this or to service the city in these ways. And there were always alternate imaginings. Don River Radio. Welcome to Don River Radio. I'm your host, Dylan Gautier. On this program, we'll be immersing ourselves in the Don, the Juan Scott Tenoche, its history, legacy, and possible futures through conversations and dialogues with those who know it. We'll also be talking about the role of art, architecture, policy, design, and regenerative practices in establishing how we make use of and understand these complex ecological and social sites. First, a land acknowledgement. We respectfully acknowledge that the sacred lands upon which we operate and the built communities and cities across the country are their traditional territories, homelands, and Nunagat of the respective First Nations, Metis Nations, and Inuit, who are the longtime stewards of these lands. We acknowledge the traditional homelands of the Wendat, Patoon, First Nations, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Wasej Kodnayosh, and pardon for my pronunciation, is one name for this area along the Lower Don River, interpreted to mean burning bright point in Anishinaabemowin. The spelling and meaning of the name is still being decided on by a language circle of First Nations, knowledge and language carriers and allies. Welcome to Don River Radio, episode one, Remembering the Don. We're gonna be talking today with Jennifer Bunnell. Jennifer Bunnell is an associate professor in the Department of History at York University, where she teaches courses in Canadian environmental and public history. She's the author of Reclaiming the Don, an environmental history of Toronto's Don River Valley, published by University of Toronto Press in 2014. Her current research includes an environmental history of beekeeping and environmental change in the Great Lakes region. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, and welcome to Don River Radio. Thanks for the introduction. So first off, I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciated uh, your book. It's it's really an amazing book. Uh, it's incredibly accessible. It's generous, both with people and with history. So it's very fitting that this is the first episode of Don River Radio, uh, because your book is really a starting point, I think, for myself and for, for our collective, but for so many others, to really start to understand what the Don is and uh, what it could have been and maybe you know what it might yet become. So it's really exciting to uh, delve into this with you. And I think, you know, my first question is just why you came to write about the Don River and why you find the Don to be such a compelling site. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I had just recently moved to Toronto from Vancouver Island on the on the west coast of Canada. Um, and I was really, you know, in the process of familiarizing myself with the city. And one of the things I did was to spend a lot of time on my bike. Um, and of course, for those of you who are familiar with Toronto, uh, discovering the city is often done through the city's ravines and that there's just such a wonderful network of um, recreational trails and bike trails. And you can pop up in all different parts of the city. And I had come from a place with big, serious rivers, um, you know, rivers that you have to be careful in in certain times of year and rivers that, although they've been altered a lot, uh, still have a lot of wildness. Um, and so encountering a river as urban and changed as the Don was, you know, it was an experience. It was something new. Um and I ended up spending quite a bit of time along that river on my bike. And I found, um, I was intrigued by the fact that there was such a history of activism around this river, particularly as in its lower reaches, it was an unwelcoming place. It's a neglected, highly altered landscape. And um, I found it really empowering to hear that uh, so many Torontonians were working to try to um, bring some uh, relationship, uh, some human relationship back into um, that river landscape and to try to make some change. One thing that your your book really catches is the maybe the disconnect between the idealized and you know hoped for place and what actually it became. I'm curious if um, if you did want to just you know encapsulate a little bit what that uh, that kind of change, you know that story of change on the river, is or maybe what what it was sure um i think you know i went into the archives with the idea of you know i didn't have i didn't have a clear uh, idea of what i might find and i i wanted to just encounter you know whatever there was on the don river and what i found was there was you know so many different ways of perceiving and experiencing this place over time and the book really charts um the experiences of, of different groups of people and their relationship with the river uh, from the, I'd say, mid-19th century into the present. And it looks at some of those imagined futures for this space. Um, some of those imaginations were, uh, you know, in the early colonial period when people saw this as a kind of agrarian landscape, a place that reminded them of England, because many of the, the settlers that were um, moving into the Toronto area in the late 18th century had come from, from Britain and saw in those kind of uh, rolling uh, pastoral landscapes as, they, as the Lower Don was being cleared of its forests at the time, um, an opportunity that reminded them of home. And so uh, that was one kind of imagining, was this sort of uh, settler colonial imagining for the river, uh, transforming it into estate lots for, um, you know, prominent uh, men and families within the governor's inner circle. Uh, come late, you know, by the, by the 19th century, by the middle of the 19th century, the dawn and its location at sort of the, the eastern edge of that original town center really made it a space to cast the things that you didn't want to look at, that you didn't want to smell. 
And so you get this very different industrial imagining for the river starting to take hold in the 1850s when um, you get rail, rail access coming in from the eastern side of the city and really making that a very convenient location to locate industries that residents of the town core probably didn't want a lot of contact with. And so you start to see um, slaughterhouses and soap factories and breweries and other things, even oil refineries by the turn of the of the 20th century, locating along the lower reaches of the Don and really enabled by rail access. And, you know, those early industries use the river as a convenient place to dispose of their waste. So you start to see um, the lower river in, you know, horribly polluted conditions by the end of the 19th century. So that's one of the stories I tell. I also look to efforts to reimagine that space, especially after it had become so very polluted and really, you know, beyond uh, reclamation in some ways. And so early conservationists, people like Charles Soriel, uh, who beginning in the 1920s and 30s, but gathering speed by the 1940s, uh, creates a conservation association, the kind of forerunner to the conservation authority, to try to encourage Torontonians to care for this space at the city's edge. And especially as we move up into the upper reaches of the Don, which were still, you know, forested and one could imagine these as important places for city residents to enjoy a walk away from those more industrial aspects of the lower river. So I look to conservationists and then I, you know, really explore how that campaign moves through the 20th century and changes with the different kinds of environmental movements that develop after the 1960s and how they really differ from early conservationists like Charles Soriel. So those are our certainly some of the, the themes that I explore in the book. I, I also look at homelessness in the valley and um, people who were experiencing the valley as a place of, of refuge, as a place of subsistence in terms of accessing the river, accessing um, reeds to make baskets to sell at St. Lawrence Market, how the river and the valley provided different groups of, two different groups of people over time. And I think that's really, um, you know, I think that's really striking in the way that you tell this story um, in your book. For you describe the dawn as a Turin vague, where old and new political economies overlap. And in your book, you talk about the marginal actors and marginal uses of the site, writing a lot about homelessness and the kinds of subsistence living that happened within the ravines and perhaps continues to happen. The history of homelessness dates back to the very early 1800s. Um, in terms of people living along the riverbanks in caves and other formations, people erecting shanties and finding in the valley the limited resources to be able to sell things like pitch and other products that were flammable um, and that were used for various purposes, uh, fish and other things that, you know, people carved a living out of this space because it, it, it also... Uh, I think the other big connection here is it allowed for a space free of surveillance um, mainly. And so because the valley is such a convoluted place, it's a difficult to access space. 
it has a long history of, um, you know, convicts escaping through the valley, uh, gangsters and others using this space as kind of a getaway zone. Um, so there's that underworld function of the valley that has a very long history as well. And when I look to, you know, the current history of homelessness in the valley, it still serves that purpose for people who are seeking refuge and who are seeking a, a reclusive space where um, they can be outside of the beat of most city policemen and and other um, agents of, of, of the city who might be, you know, uh, seeking contact with people like that. So it still provides those services. And I think this is partly one of the things I trace in that it was such a difficult space to develop that it kind of becomes this remnant wild space within the history of the city. Yeah, there's a, there's a feeling that it's a, it's it's quite accidental in a way that like the, the amount of wilderness or the amount of um, natural space has been preserved almost because parts of it couldn't be used for various reasons. And you, I think you, you detail that. These types of sites are also what, you know, as, as an artist and um, has always drawn me to them is that they're, uh, they can be sites of, you know, uh, kind of, a kind of freedom because they're not maybe closely guarded or, or um, surveilled in the same way that like a, a real, you know, public park often is. And, uh, and there are places where you can get lost and wander. Um, but I'm curious whether you think there's a tension in its its role or the kind of ability to serve in that way and the kinds of development and um, the, the the current reimaginings of the, the Don River Valley. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find really um, hopeful about this space is it's, you know, we've talked about it as a kind of remnant wilderness, but it's also a space that's really rebounded from a lot of heavy duty development, especially uh, in the lower reaches of the dawn that were so heavily industrialized, really from the late 19th century into, you know, the early decades of the 20th century until say the, the 1930s or so into the 50s. Uh, but you had space, all these wetlands that were filled to create, you know, that that marvelous uh, um, thing that all city politicians and landowners want as well. You know, the marvel of creating free land right out of out of no land. So all of those wetlands that were so significant to the biodiversity of the area and its service as a floodplain, uh, much of those spaces are filled uh, in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century. But as um, through that process of deindustrialization in this valley, I think that's, that's another really interesting story here in that like the, the Leslie Street spit, um, we see we can see in real time and in our own lived experiences um, this process of reclamation that is nature's reclamation of this space. And the fact that it it now um, serves as such a, a corridor for the city's wildlife, and you know some of these um, citizens groups have had some success in restoring some of the wetlands, especially in in uh, you know other parts of the valley. But the valley has a lot of pressures on it now, in especially in the context of COVID, and that so many more people and their pets are accessing this space than ever before. And so we get those those corridor in place tensions that I talk a lot about in the book between um, people like Frederick Gardner, the um, Metro Toronto councillor who saw in this space a corridor for a highway and, and little else as a kind of friction free corridor, as I talk about it in the book. 
um, versus people like Soriel who saw it as a place to cherish and protect. And I think you still get those tensions uh, today between citizens groups who are seeking to restore portions of the valley and cyclists and, um, you know, um, people who want to move through the valley and use it more as a corridor. I think it, it, those tensions remain just as relevant today as they were in the 19th century. You can trace a lot of through lines from the early 19th century right through to the present in terms of how this space continues to be used and, and understood today. So, I mean, the fact that in the late 18th century, it was used as a storage place for flammable and dangerous materials like coal and lumber and gunpowder, things you would just want to move to the city's edge, keep other people safe, right? Well, today it's still used as a place to dump the city's huge piles of salt lace snow from the city's roads. It's um, still used as a kind of um, storage facility at the edge of the city, even though it's now engulfed by the city. So the dawn goes from the valley goes from being kind of a dumping ground at the city's edge to a place that um, still serves those purposes in in odd ways, but it, but it's now kind of running through the heart of the city as more of a transportation corridor. And this long history of rail lines that are and you know that are now compounded by. Um, major thoroughfares in terms of the Don Valley Parkway, in terms of gas lines and recreational corridors. So it still functions as an important corridor, not only for people, but for wildlife. So there's that continuity. In your book, you talk about the way that the Don really led the early development of the original settlement of the town of York that would become Toronto, and how it was originally imagined as this lush site full of resources, but those uses were really rather quickly depleted. And you write about how it turned from fecund land to wasteland or from fecund wilderness into the objectionable stream, uh, in quotes, by the 1880s. And uh, I mean, it's it's the continuum of the same story and the same telling, but it, it definitely yeah. becomes even more relevant. Um, yeah, that, that tabula rasa that you talked about of... Um, and using this space as a blank canvas to propel imaginings for the city more broadly. You know, that's one of the things I talked about from those early industrial imaginings, from those colonial imaginings, right through to the 21st century. Let's use this space as a kind of canvas to um, propel broader um, dreams for the city as a whole. And, you know, because of its proximity to the city core, uh, the lower valley has really served those functions. I mean, I, I, I also sense a, um, a continuation uh, in the, the the intentions of people who've been involved in developing or rethinking or reimagining, and and there have been some you know well-intentioned projects and very questionable. Uh, not so well-intentioned projects, and then there's also this maybe as a foreshadowing to the late, you know later talking about Portland's. I'm I'm curious if you can give a little background on the straightening of the dawn. I was also really interested in in your telling of it in um, thinking about the kind of obsolescence of that gesture and how that might relate to 
things like climate adaptation planning that we're, you know, struggling to get ahead of the curve on. Yeah, that's a nice uh, connection you're drawing there in that. Yes. So the straightening project of the 1880s is something that's intimately tied to the history of rail and rail access in the valley. And it, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story in that um, you get businesses and people living around, you know, in the lower valley who are frustrated through the latter decades of the 19th century with with the valley is a really difficult place, right? A difficult landscape. The the even though this is a pretty small river in in you know the grand scheme of things, it's a river that that floods, that destroys property, that that takes lives, um, you know, annually in spring freshet and in fall floods. And you know the history of of bridge destruction in the valley is you know in these hundred year flood cycles is is another story in terms of. Um, how much this frustrates human endeavors, how it destroys many of the milling operations along the dawn in the 19th century. People who, you know, establish on the river in one time of year and are surprised when the water they depend on for their milling operation is completely dried up at a different part of year, or they've got a flood running through that's destroying their mill races. So, um, you know, the thing to highlight there is just what a dynamic space it is to be locating your um, enterprises within a river valley within a floodplain. So you've got this you've got this difficult space that's that's frustrating human endeavors, right? And you've got this highly polluted space by the 1880s. And so one of the um, impetuses for the project is this idea that you could just flush all this pollution straight down through a straightened corridor right out into the lake. Um, but the real impetus for the project is that it's really hard to locate a rail line along a curvy um, wetland uh, surrounded landscape. So it's much easier to straighten that river. And once you've got rail interests involved, you've got um, a big stakeholder who can help drive this project out of the dream phase into, you know, shovel ready, shovels on the ground. So by the 1880s, getting the CPR on board to um, help finance the project with the city is, is a big deal. So you get these two arguments, you get rail and you get people who are concerned about flooding and pollution on the ground. And politicians sort of stitch all of these uh, various goals together and create this vision. Of, they, they begin with a vision of bringing, you know, boat traffic right up as far as the Bloor Danforth line, which is, is one of a series of things that doesn't, ex that doesn't actually happen. It, it's a good example of a late 19th century engineering project in that there's just not a lot of good knowledge of conditions on the ground and that they encounter shale when they begin digging. And so visions for a deep river channel have to be abandoned quite quickly. And that idea of, of boat traffic that far up the river has to be abandoned with that. So it's a project of half measures from the very beginning. Uh, it costs more. It takes longer than initially anticipated. Rail, you know, the rail and industrialization parts of the vision do end up happening. You get, you get the CPR line running alongside a straightened river. You get new land for industry that satisfies a lot of the politicians who were involved, many of whom 
or several of whom at least own properties along the river and stood to benefit quite directly. So I think um, in terms of the, the, the uh, obsolescence of the project though, and that question you asked, you had um, you know, the project really gets off the ground when the Toronto mayor goes to Cleveland and he's there to attend a funeral and he sees what Cleveland has done to the Cuyahoga. Um, you know, a river of similar size, similar kind of um, framework of many rivers that come into the Great Lakes in the area. He sees that, okay, we can industrialize the Don just as they industrialized the Cuyahoga in Cleveland. And so this is, a, you know, another big um, moment in the history of that project to get it off the ground. What is unfortunate is that, uh, you know, the idea of straightening a river of industrializing this space really comes at a time when, when few people, few cities are investing in this kind of big mega project. You know, they are, they're now moving to rail, they're moving to um, other sources of, of transit, and they're moving industries beginning in the early 20th century, industries are being moved outside of the city centre. So Toronto's kind of late to the party and uh, invests a huge amount of money in this project when questions like the pollution question would have been way better served by a trunk sewer, for example. How do these stories from the past about the way that the river was imagined and maybe ultimately its inability to become the thing that was imagined exactly, what can they tell us in our present moment as we are essentially building a new leg to the river? Yeah, I think this story of the dawn straightening with its with its half measures and its failures. So, you know, it succeeds it succeeds in satisfying rail uh, and their interest in having an eastern entrance to the city, the CP rail. It succeeds in um, creating that kind of industrial vision, uh, an industrial hub at the city's eastern edge. So the Don does serve as that industrial hub. It gets heavily industrialized in the 1890s and the years following the straightening on all of that you know, made up land, but it fails miserably in some of the other things that politicians had promised. And those two things were problems with flooding and problems with pollution. And so this idea that you would flush all of your pollutants into the lake, well, because the project never succeeded in creating a straight corridor out to the lake. It, it, for those of you familiar with the Don, it, it has a very sharp right angle turn into Keating Channel. And this was because they couldn't get permission from British American Oil, who owned property at the mouth of the Don, to move the river channel through um, their refinery property. So they have to make an abrupt you know, right angle turn and again, you just see the, the failures of planning in this project in that surely those things might have been secured before proceeding. In the, year, in the years immediately after the project is complete, you still get massive ice jams on the, win on the river in the winter um, and flooding in the 1890s that covers much of that lower Donlands area. So, you know, it succeeds in a certain type of vision, it fails in others, and the river still, you know, remains an unpredictable and challenging space So that continuity continues. And I think, you know, when I think about some of the more current visions for the river and, and current plans, you'd asked about big tech companies and, you know, sidewalk labs, I think a big partner really matters. It, it, 
moves big uh, visions forward, just as it did with with a big partner like CP Rail in um, in the 1880s. And I don't think this project would have happened without them, uh, because you know, in the 1880s, this required the city to actually host a referendum and ask taxpayers to pay for this project. And they held referendum after referendum on things like the trunk sewer and taxpayers, even though their children were dying of typhus, um, said over and over again, no, we don't want to pay, right? So I don't think they would have paid for a straightening of the Don River that would have benefited some businessmen on the Don and, and you know, not a, certainly not people on the other side of the city who were also being asked to vote, right? So I think, yeah, big partners really matter in moving things forward, perhaps too quickly, perhaps without the foresight that was needed. Um, certainly that was the case in, in the 1880s. So Jennifer, where do you see the dawn today in relation to the rest of the city? Uh, one thing that I seemed to notice just anecdotally was that it seems to be a less uh, uh, popular river than say the Humber. And many people, when they heard that I was doing a project around a river in Toronto just automatically assumed that it was the Humber. Um, when uh, I talk to people about the Portland's project, uh, there's an incredible amount of, um, well, let's just say there's not that much in-depth knowledge about what's happening there, which is kind of amazing given the scale of that project. Um, so I'm really curious what you think is the role of uh, memory for this site and what is the relationship of memories of the dawn past to, let's say, the dawn present and then to uh, the future of, uh, of this river? Yeah, well, I mean, this project for the mouth of the dawn, it's been around for a good decade, right, in terms of visioning for this project. It was certainly there when I was writing the book uh, in the 20, early 2010s. And so I think at that time, when we looked at this, it seemed like it would never happen. And it's been through, you know, so many multiple environmental assessments and various things since. I am astonished that they managed to pull together the financing in order to, to make it happen as quickly as they are. But I think it's important to remember, you know, where are the portlands? They are, you know, right at the gem of the harbor, right? In terms of um, talk about turning a an eyesore for the city into a revenue generating, you know, new neighborhood. I think this is the impetus for moving forward with the Don naturalization, the Don Mouth naturalization project. And whether we can still call it that, it's in my mind, it's mostly about condo development. It's creating a new kind of destination neighborhood in the city. And I think there's some naturalization frills around the edges. I mean, there, there's this sense also that they're they're fixing these earlier problems or these earlier failings. And yeah, there is some really exciting vision here, right? Um, dealing with soil contamination, first off, like that's a massive, massive project. And that's the reason why this area has been sitting as industrial brownfield for so long is the fact that dealing with the um, decontaminating all of that soil is so immensely expensive and, and challenging. So there's that. I think the other thing we should say about this initiative is the fact that they were thinking about flooding right at the outset as that we should be thinking about this as, um, you know, planning and projecting for future floods 
that's really different than the 1880s plan. So I do see much more foresight, much more planning in this project. Unfortunately, we have seen also a lot of drift. I mean, the original plans to uh, naturalize the mouth of the Don were forwarded by the task force to bring back the Don uh, in the 1980s. And um, they had a vision that the original um, architects for this plan used and worked with to come up with their initial renderings. Um, you know, it was much more naturalization first, creating a, a naturalized corridor for wildlife. And I mean, there's only so much you can do with the corridor part of the Lower Don, which runs alongside the highway and the rail line. Um, but certainly the mouth, there was, you know, it, they had envisioned much more of a naturalized park-like landscape. And that's not what this final vision has afforded us. I think Waterfront Toronto has, you know, really done a good job over the past decade in unrolling a series of, of very popular projects. And, and part of this is about another thing I talk about in my book, which is turning the city's waterfront into more of a front yard than a backyard. So it's been a dumping ground, um, a space that's made difficult to access through transportation corridors and, 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 you know, condominium development, all of which tends to, the city sort of turns its back on, on its waterfront. You forget often that we live in a waterfront city. And I think um, Waterfront Toronto has done a really good job of trying to just turn that ship around. And I think that was a really important development to happen to really um, engage Torontonians in rethinking that space. And, um, you know, they've had to sell public lands in order to finance this. So there's there's that, which is which is, you know, something to consider. But I think that they've also drawn the public back to the waterfront in some really exciting ways. I'm I'm, you know, places like Sugar Beach and, and developments that are really welcoming to the public as as a public space. I'm more excited about than some of the, the new uh seemingly more private spaces of condominium developments. However, I know that they are integrating parkland and flood spaces, floodplains into this reimagining of the Lower Dawn. And we do need to densify and, you know, build new housing. So uh, these are very practical considerations. Um, I, I think in a watershed that's 90% urbanized, um, we need to you know, keep our, our our visions within certain bounds for the dawn. And uh, if they can build some greater fluidity into uh, those hard shorelines, I think that was one of the biggest losses that some of the activists who have been pushing for this project for so long was um, an initial vision that had a lot more soft edges uh, and a lot more space for naturalization, moving to a vision of a lot more hard edges again. I'm also really curious what connecting the Don back to the lake means in terms of creating kind of a continuity of people's experience of that waterway. And does the Don become an even more beloved kind of river space? Does it get its full recognition and appreciation from the public through this project? What do you think comes next? Well, I think one of the things that that's most important is kind of a, a less celebrated development on the river. And it's something that's also been in 
progress for um, you know more than a decade, and that's the you know the city's wet weather management plan. I mean, I know that sounds really dull, but trying to um, stop all the storm sewers from emptying into the river and redeveloping the sewage system along the lower, lower Don, so that I mean, this is something that there's so many you know links back to the past, but. In the 1950s and 60s, immediately after the war, when the city's infrastructure was crumbling and you had this huge um, population, you know, um, increase. And so you've got governments trying to struggle with these combined um, pressures. You had, you know, the Metro Council invest a lot of money into sewage infrastructure in the city. And this really matters because it turns the Don Valley into a place that you couldn't possibly imagine spending much time in because it smelled so terrible, to a place where you might have a Saturday picnic. And that transformation, you know, opens up this huge area within the city, this interlocking network of ravines to public enjoyment and public care. And I think groups like the Task Force to Bring Back the Dawn, which, which get their origins in the late 1980s, pick up upon this earlier generation of conservationists and really move forward with the banner of public access. We need public access to get more Torontonians into this space so that more Torontonians will care about this space. And I see parallels with what Waterfronts Toronto is, is trying to do with the waterfront and a project like the, you know, the project to naturalize or, or reimagine the mouth of the Don while we have lost some of the naturalization vision for that project, uh, I think it's forward thinking in terms of flooding, as I've mentioned, and you know, planning for future flood. Um, but it's also created a lot of very popular public spaces like Corktown Common, um, which is already developed as a space that's integrated into the bicycle network along the Lower Don. People go and they enjoy that space and they think about this river differently because, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is most people experience the Don from the windshields of their car on the Don Valley Parkway. And projects like this get people out of their cars and off the subways and ask them to explore, I think, the interconnections between these developing neighborhoods and some of the foundational, you know, natural topography and natural spaces that this city rests upon. Groups like Lost Rivers have done an enormous service to the city by asking residents to imagine that those dips in the road that you encounter you know, they have a history. They refer to buried creeks in many cases. And that's a that's a huge aha moment for a lot of Toronto residents that they can reconnect with nature right in their backyard and just better understand the landscapes around them. And I think that's something that um, I'm excited to see, you know, develop over the city in the last 10 years, especially, is a greater interest and appreciation in nature right outside our doors rather than destination nature that we, you know, spend our, our holiday time venturing out into because we have to start with where we live uh, in terms of um, um, finding ways to, to coexist with, uh, with biodiversity in the city. And uh, I think Torontonians are really um compelled by that, the people seeing um, all of the wildlife that emerged during the pandemic. I think a lot of people were astonished that we cohabit this place with red fox 
foxes and uh, coyotes and, and many other um, animals who, who rely on these corridors. It's, it's been amazing. And I think some way of keeping, you know, the public uh, engaged and interested in the, in the kind of care that you're also talking about that needs to happen to make sure that um, that these, you know, spaces are um, preserved and, imp- and even, you know, uh, made better through these kinds of infrastructural changes that, that need to happen um, is so important. Uh, how much do people know about the history of the Don? How much, you know, do you feel like they should know, like if they're out exploring and, you know, in- encountering these, um, this natural um, uh, site within the city, um, how do they, or not natural, kind of post-natural, whatever you want to call it, uh, but finding nature in the city and, and however it does um, present itself. Um, you know, how, I guess, um, how can we find, because this is also what our project's looking at is thinking of how do we find ways to like overlay or interweave um, this kind of storytelling around the history of place in in a way so that people don't take it for granted, even though it's great if people are out there and they're taking it for granted and enjoying it, right? Like that's important kind of public access you're talking about. But um, uh, yeah, just like, do you have any thoughts for how how to better interweave these stories into like this new place that will be a kind of a blank slate also, right? I mean, I would say first off that there's many knee-jerk reactions to a space like the Don. And one of them is, oh, that's a really dirty, awful space that I don't want to spend any time in, especially if it's the lower Don that people are talking about. And I, in my work and in my work with students, I want people to see that this place is the product of a series of overlaid decisions and that those decisions weren't inevitable. You know, this space wasn't destined necessarily to to look like this or to service the city in these ways. And there were always alternate imaginings. And so that's one of the things I, I really want the book to contribute is, hey, did you know that there was a conservation movement in the Don Valley as early as the 1940s and that people have been, you know, um, defending this space for decades, uh, living in this space, imagining it as a, you know, a cottage retreat from the city. I think that those stories of urban cottagers living in the valley of um, early ramblers and scout leaders using this space, I, I think those are those are unfamiliar to many Torontonians, like I said, the majority of whom experienced the valley through the windshield and um, haven't spent time walking in the valley. So I think that the pandemic has brought many more people to experience the space, as I said earlier. So we really saw a surge in interest in, you know, backyard, backyard wildlife and backyard natural spaces like the Don. It's, it's scruffy, right? And uh, I think, um, that is encouraged more people to care for it and to imagine what it could be. And when I see people, you know, naturalist groups and others out there um, pulling dog straggling vine and doing all that public service, they are imagining what this valley could be and what we stand to lose if it's, you know, native vegetation is, is completely overrun. And I think that, yeah, through conservation and people being on the ground, um, I love this idea that they're also reimagining reimagining or imagining what what comes next in that space yeah and i think i think in terms of the interweaving and the storytelling parts that you asked about i think people are really compelled to see that the current trends we see in the valley whether that's homelessness whether that's corridor functions like gas lines and Mm -hmm. high-speed bikes um 
people love to draw those connections backwards and forwards. So being able to show that this space has served this kind of function in different ways um, for hundreds of years is, I think, really stimulates people's curiosity. But they're also interested to hear how different some of those experiences in the past were um, in the Valley. So, um, you know, homeless men in the depression sleeping in the evergreen brickworks because a kind manager allowed them to sleep on the warm, you know, the cooling bricks. That's a story that people find really compelling, I think. So what is the, the history of human experience in this place? Um, the fact that conservationism has changed so much that someone like Charles Soriel uh, would be most concerned about people, you know, about young boys going and hacking at saplings and young girls going and picking wildflowers compared to the kinds of questions and dilemmas we're faced with today, right? Um, the fact that there's a history of cottaging in the valley and we didn't talk about it, but the story of Hurricane Hazel in really cementing what planners had known since the decade before in the 40s, really even in the 30s, coming to understand the value of these drainage corridors in the city and what they serve for, for the rest of the city and really getting that hit home with a major, um, you know, 100-year storm event like, like Hurricane Hazel. Uh, so I think you get knowledge that's reinforced by experience and that cycle continues and, and ignoring that knowledge, shelving that knowledge um, as they did in the years before Hurricane Hazel have a cost. And I think the, the current government's um, gutting of some of the conservation authority funding, uh, especially around education work. So there's been, you know, they've said, you're just about flooding, that's all you should be doing. Well, conservation authorities have a really important education role, I think too, in, in talking about this history and why they were formed in the first place, right? Because these spaces, we absolutely depend upon them. This is Dawn River Radio. I'm Dylan Gauthier. Our collective is Mari Liberum. You can find us at thefreeseas.org. Our project is dawnriverradio.ca. We're hosted by Evergreen Brickworks and Waterfront Toronto and supported by Artworks TO Year of Public Art. Our audio engineer is Tom Upjohn. Music by John Tarr. Special thanks to our collaborators Shannon Gerard and Maria Hupfield, curators Charlene Lau, Chloe Catan, and Carrie Swinar. In our next episode, we'll be talking with Natami Stewart from Waterfront Toronto. I hope you'll listen in. See you on the dawn. <laughs>